Welcome back to Bubble Trouble, conversations between two deep fakes masquerading as humans. Uh, actually, it's us, the real-life double act of independent analyst Richard Kramer, that's me, and the economist and author Will Page. We're closing in fast on our 100th episode of exposing sycophants and stenographers for creating bubbles and getting our portfolios into trouble. And after a dissection of diatribe from one of the noisiest carnival barkers in the VC world, Mark Andreessen, <laughs> We turn to the unavoidable Mr. Musk and his beached fail whale X, formerly known as Twitter. Did he take something mediocre and make it worse? Was it deliberate sabotage or willful ignorance, blunder or bluster, megaphone or megafall from grace? With us, we have veteran tech journalist Alex Kantrowitz to help solve for X. More in a moment. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Alex, welcome back to Pubble Trouble. It's great to get you on. Big fan of your work. It's definitely somebody who covers tech who doesn't follow the herd and speaks his own mind as opposed to drinking the Kool-Aid. But maybe we could ask you in a suitably tweet-length introduction to just bring to the audience a bit about your background, a bit about what you're working on, and most importantly, tell our audience where they can follow your work. Absolutely. So I'm a tech reporter who actually worked in the tech industry before starting to report on it. I spent two years buying digital ads and then a year selling advertising technology before becoming a reporter for Advertising Age, then BuzzFeed News, and then I went out on my own. I have a publication called Big Technology, which you can find at bigtechnology.com. We just launched a premium edition, and there's also Big Technology Podcast, which you can find in your podcast app of choice. Fantastic. All right, so let's turn to the subject matter for tonight, which is X, formerly Twitter. Now, full disclosure, I'm a bit of a social media Luddite. I don't Facebook, I don't Instagram. And up until recently, I don't really tweet. So I'm kind of new to this. I, When the book came out, I set up Will Page author on Twitter. But you guys are three strikes veterans. So I thought we'd just flip it over to you in terms of how do we begin understanding whether Twitter is in trouble or not? Because it always seems to be in trouble. I don't know anybody who's worked at that company said it's not in trouble. So it's all relative, right? It all starts from a low base. Talk to me about a brief history of Twitter for Luddites like me who just don't understand this company. Mark Zuckerberg famously said that Twitter's executives were effectively a clown car and they drove it into a gold mine. <laughs> and Twitter has been this indestructible mess since the beginning because it's been this source of real-time information and network effects built there where it became the place to go for information in the moment. And of course, it had various iterations and brushes with different segments and communities of meme lords and entertainers and celebrities. But ultimately, news was always at the core of what Twitter did best. In fact, when Jack Dorsey came back and took, took over as CEO in 2015, 2016, there was a temporary period and then he was installed permanently. He actually took the app from being more of an entertainment general purpose app and put it in the news category in the app store. And that's when you started to see more growth in Twitter, more revenue growth in Twitter. It seemed like it was finally getting on a path of direction and sustainability. and then. A group of activist investors bought into the company, basically forced Jack out and led to the sparks of a sale, which is where it ended up going to Elon Musk. And I think that's where we find it now, where after finally finding some direction, it went into Musk's hands and Musk had a completely different idea for what this app and company can be and is trying to rewrite the rules going against the grain of what made Twitter finally be on a path to some success. 
And so that's Twitter. If I can just jump in there, it feels like what you're describing there is a movie or even a documentary. Is there a movie or documentary our audience can watch to capture the Twitter story? I mean, I could tell you there's like, there's a documentary that just dropped on Frontline, which I think is available on YouTube. So you could just Google Frontline Twitter, Elon Musk. But there's also like five or six, I don't know, so many books, some announced, some not announced, that are being written about this period right now in Twitter history. So stay tuned for that because those will inevitably be optioned and will they'll fill. One will be on Netflix, one will be on HBO. <laughs> Somebody else will buy the third. Rich, you've been covering Twitter since oh, before it was yeah. cool and before it was uncool. So give us the cool of the uncool lock, stock and barrel of Twitter. So Alex, I mean, I've followed Twitter since IPO and, and uh, you know, famously, we were the only analysts out of 42 with a sell on the stock when it fell 40% in 2016, which they ended up paying 800 million bucks to settle lawsuits around. But my simple description of the Twitter business model was, if you pass Will and I running in the park and we're chatting amiably, you won't notice us. But if we're sitting there screaming at each other, you might stop and pay attention. And to my mind, that was always the Twitter business model. It was more so than any of the other social media monetizing that that uh, almost pornographic, can't look away urge to to view something awful. And by the way, there has and always been a lot of porn on Twitter, but let's park that for a second. And it was always a platform that had many problems. It had poor engineering. It was riddled with bots and fraud. It was never brand safe. I get this role that it, it's like catnip to journalists because it is a place to see news distributed. But was Twitter ever really a clean, normal company at any time in its history? No, definitely not. I mean, that was the whole clown car aspect to it. And yes, people came in and they yelled about stuff, but the journalists gave them the nugget to yell about, right? Which is because they would come in, it was both journalists and it was primary sources would come in and drop a bit of information that you couldn't find elsewhere. They would obviously tweet first and then write the story for their site or report it on TV because they love that virality and people would go bananas over it. And by the way, despite the fact that it was so poorly engineered, poorly led, poorly everything, it survived because of that vitality, because it did have that information. And the reason was, is because you're right, the junkie aspect, you had, you know, tens, if not hundreds of millions of people on there, just ready to get that next little nugget to fight over. And if that thing is going to come a few times a day, it becomes this extremely addictive property. And that's why it takes up so much of the mind share of like the big, the general discourse is because like it's ground zero for information. Alex, can I just come in on this news point? Because this is really quite subject close to this podcast. We have our chapter on this podcast called The Future of the Free Press. We've had Brooke Masters on the show talking about this with heart and soul. But you're right, Twitter, if you look at news app charts, Twitter is number one. Wall Street Journal, New York Times is way down that list, but Twitter is a clear number one. Reddit is now a number two as well. And that, as you say, is because they declare themselves a news app. And if you look at journalists for The Economist, if you read The Economist, you never get to know who did the byline. But now they're using Twitter to say, that was my article, please, which is breaching their employment contracts. Do you think there's a correlation causation discussion to be had about the growth of Twitter and the decline of the free press and that fewer people are buying news? No, I think that the decline of the free press is largely a result of bad business management on behalf of the people running these companies. The transition from print to digital was extremely difficult for many of them mm-hmm. who refused to let go of old ways. By the way, workers also refused to let go of old union contracts right. and they drove these publications into the ground. They were unwilling and unflexible to experiment with new models. And, you know, they shot themselves in the foot as much as like they were run over by the freight train of large digital media companies like Facebook, Google and Twitter. Yeah, I agree. I think the newspapers have a lot to answer for. Just as a, a little footnote there, I churned from The Economist, the magazine I mentioned earlier. I've read it since puberty. I've churned from it. They tried to win me back with this offer, Alex. They said, come back to The Economist. One year, £114.52. That's a charming price point. Three years, £517.16. <laughs> And I wrote to the editor-in-chief and said, since when in the laws of taxi pricing does a second mile cost more than a first? And this was The Economist. Yeah. All right, second icebreaker comment. They need economists <laughs> at The Economist. That's the well, bottom let, line. Let, let me, I want to just, before, because we can go down a lot of rabbit holes, I want to challenge one thing there. Did Twitter start this compression or concatenation of attention and, and discourse 
where a tweet length, 140 characters substituted for the in-depth reporting or thoughtful discussion in any medium. And were uh, they the accelerant yeah. of that? Were they just the innocent bystanders who latched on to the idea that SMS was a new medium? Or did they were the ones that pushed new me old media over the edge of the cliff? Yeah, I think they're just like the most essential distillation of what the internet was going to be driving us toward. They are the if you've watched Breaking Bad, they are the blue meth of this new internet attention economy. It hits so hard and you just don't want to get it from anywhere else. Oh. <laughs> well, I watched Breaking Bad from start to finish because I was told that Vince Gilligan was a big fan of my book. And I said to the person who told me this, who's Vince Gilligan? He's like, well, you're going to meet him in a month's time. So watch the entire <laughs> show of Breaking Bad as well. Right. So Icebreaker question number two before we come to your big story, which is these numbers seem to be going south. But really quickly, one thing I want to understand as a novice Luddite with Twitter is, why does it capture so much attention when it's actually quite small? When we talk about the tech giants, we don't use Twitter because it's not a giant. But when we look at like the apportionment of conversation about tech, it punches above its weight, it seems. It catches far more attention than it's worth in market cap. Can either of you just explain to me, the, the dumb kid in the classroom here, why that divergence? Why that gap? Its influence has always exceeded its revenue uh, capture. And that is, again, because it's been this ground zero of information happening in the moment. And if your existence doesn't depend on learning everything as it happens in the moment, then you're probably much better off going to cable news or a newspaper or a magazine or just not caring about it at all. Your life is probably going to be better that way. I mean, the alternative is you learn this like strange online culture, like Twitter has its own culture, its own memes, its own language. Oftentimes when you're in the feed, people are talking about some inside joke that nobody, you know, coming from the outside would know unless they're immersed 24-7. And so, you know, the people that do go through the effort to get that information in the moment are the people whose careers and existences depend on that. And who's that group? I mean, it is, it's policy setters, it's journalists, it's anyone with a job who like really needs to make crucial in the moment decisions. And those people end up driving a lot of the conversation in society. So it's almost like their own private chat room for people who, you know, probably have made poor decisions in terms of their life direction, <laughs> <laughs> including myself. You are fucking poetic, Alex, man. You are poetic. I will. Let me add one other thing, which is a really simple point from a financial market point of view, which is once you started getting into the kind of metrics we're about to discuss with Twitter, the discussion in the late 90s, early 2000s about monetizing eyeballs quickly became some sort of crude measure of time spent. And the fact is, Twitter distills its interactions into incredibly tiny pieces of time spent. You don't get a lot of concentrated, focused attention on Twitter because by nature, it doesn't take you that long to read 140 characters. You don't have the dwell time when you're watching a, a piece of video content that's long form or you're reading a long form magazine or news article. You don't have that sustained concentration that is ideal for delivering an advertising message. And so the very nature of Twitter's content makes it very poor for delivering advertising alongside it because you're getting snapping through or snacking through a lot of content. Mm -hmm. And it just never cracked a way to monetize large volumes of time spent because it was always getting little pieces of it. And, and Alex, I don't know if you'd agree with that or there's something else to the business model, but it feels like that was its fatal flaw from the get-go. So from a pure distilled advertising perspective, like, yes, in terms of making money off the eyeballs on Twitter, I think that's exactly right. The problem for Twitter, from my understanding, has always been the direct response advertising side has not been great. And for the listeners, I'm sure your listeners know, but direct response, I put a dollar in. I can immediately measure the ROI on that dollar because I'm getting like $2 in sales out. The thing that Twitter had long been trying to do was sort of break out of that and make and do brand sales. And it built a very large sales force to do that, to go into brands in Madison Avenue and say, listen, like 
you know, it's, it's maybe not the best environment, but, you know, here's some things we can do for you. They really tried to make a very strong push into video for that purpose. So they can put these branded ads, television style ads next to that. That had mixed results. And yeah, and then Elon came in and cut 80% of the staff. And that included a lot of salespeople. People in Madison Avenue were like, they lost their point of contact inside Twitter. And that's why the sales have declined. So that's definitely the truth in terms of why the advertising business is is struggling right now and has always struggled. The question is, could you take some of the intent, like the interest and the intent signals in terms of people's follow graphs and the data that you could glean from the about the world from Twitter and sort of apply that more broadly to the internet and create an ad network? I guess that's one potential avenue that they've tried to go down in the past, but never really had any success with. But you know, I guess anyone who's used Twitter has like a thousand different potential revenue, you know, solutions for the company, but they had some very smart people in there. And the most they were able to do is like $5 billion and, and some change in a year. I know. So way beyond, way below what competitors like Meta and Google. A rounding error compared to those two players. Mm, now, yeah, like an afternoon of revenue. <laughs> let's get to our story because you come out of the blocks. I think you were the first kid out, to, out in the block to actually call it out, which is... This is a company which, as you've both clearly explained, has had a troublesome past, has had an incredibly volatile recent past, but then you announced that the numbers for Twitter were going down. Walk us through what it means when a company which is as troubled as Twitter starts to go south. Well, I mean, you're kind of in this moment where you always have to be replacing users. If you're Twitter, you have lots of new and casual users that come in, try the app, and then some stick and some don't. So it's really managing the churn game is the key to success at Twitter. It's what I, it's what fact, I call the Red Queen race from Alice in Wonderland. You've got to run as fast as you can just yeah. to stand still. 100%. It's a treadmill. And Chris Sacco, who's one of Twitter's like core investors in the early days, talked about the fact that a billion people have tried Twitter and left. And you start to see that materialize a little bit where when Elon came in, they actually got a very good spike in interest. I think, okay, daily active users spiked close to 10% when Elon completed his purchase. The problem is that they haven't been replacing them at the same rate as they've been losing them. And so you've started to see some serious declines. And and the real problem recently for them, according to the data that I obtained, and I think this was also confirmed by the Sensor Tower data that you guys have and the Sensor Tower data that the Wall, Wall Street Journal published, was they changed their name from Twitter to X. And once they did that, they lost a lot of brand recognition, a lot of, I guess, SEO in some ways. And they lost, I mean, much of the organic buildup that they had that, you know, people wanted to try Twitter, they would type it in, I imagine, and And, they would download it. Just to to be clear, just because our listeners Mm -hmm. might not know, SEO is search engine optimization. That's when you type into a Google search bar, for example, the name Twitter, or you're looking for something on Twitter. You don't find Twitter anymore because Mm -hmm. it's not, it's called X. Exactly. Yeah. Now, Twitter wasn't the best brand, but it was a brand. And what you really see is like very rapid decelerations in terms of user growth or shrinking of user growth once that rebrand happened. I mean, I've heard other things. People like blue apps. They don't like black apps. Apparently, every like half the apps on your phone are blue because blue is somewhat pleasing to the eye and makes people feel good to tap. But does that go for NHS track and trace apps? Surely not. Well, you guys got to figure, at least you have that, right? <laughs> I don't know. We don't have well, any NHS here, so. Well, see, you know, so I'll, I'll take issue with the very premise, which is from all my time looking at Twitter, I always felt many of the MAU and certainly what they call the MDAU, monetizable daily active user numbers, were fake because they right. never really came to grips with or, or opened up about how many of those users were bots, although many cybersecurity researchers will show you that the bots are generating the majority of traffic on Twitter if they're not the majority of users, because a bot can tweet 50,000 times in a second and a person can't. But also their whole concept of daily active users could be growth hacked. They would send you a notification, hey, see what's in your Twitter Mm -hmm. feed. And you'd open it up and all of a sudden you would have been a user for that day. So there was always this sort of hardcore of users at the center of Twitter and then many casual users. And what it seems like to me, and I don't know if this is your perception as well, is that they're just losing truck, if you will, with all those casual users. 
they're not connecting with them in the same way anymore. Yeah, that sounds right to me. I mean, they so I, we can get into to why that is. And, and But I think that, first of all, you make a good point, which is that these numbers from Twitter are like dubiously reliable. I don't think anyone who's touched them has been like, oh yeah, this is like uh, all legitimate people. So there's, there is some like, okay, you, there's some like caveats you need to place before you use these numbers. The, the one interesting thing that I saw, again, going back to this re- rebrand, was that's when number when user numbers really began to drop in the data that I had and, and also in the data that Sensor Tower provided to the Wall Street Journal. So unless that coincided with a huge bot purge, then I think that and maybe it did. But I think, you know, not having seen one announced, it does lead me to believe that the rebrand was actually a, a problem. Now, in terms of the casual user, I think that also comes down to the redesign of the feed that Twitter's main feed has been re-engineered by Musk and his team to disincentivize news, disincentivize being in the moment, and incentivize culture war, incentivize influencers like the menswear guy who gives you tips on menswear, who I had to mute eventually because, not that I can't use the help, but he was annoying at a certain point. (laughs) And Musk's own feed, of course. Musk, Musk's own feed, who I also had to mute. And then I'm talking, I'm thinking about the people I haven't muted at this point. The chat GPT influencers are the lone remaining folks there who would like, you know, give you 10 tips to create like amazing prompts in chat GPT or the best Dolly image you could ever imagine. And those were fun for a while. But the bottom line is the feed is far less real time than it was before Musk took over. And I believe that is at really at the core here. You know, mm. maybe this rebrand had something to do with it, but the disengagement of the casual users and, and the fact that the app has become, has taken the utility that it provided and the direction that it had and kind of tossed it out the window to me has been the main problem here. And, and let me ask one other, one other quick one on that, which is the longstanding issue with Twitter for many years in, in our view, and certainly looking at it as an investment has been the lack of brand safety that I could be hashtag raving racist. I could be anything on Twitter because they had anonymous tweeting. And there was always a a, a large volume of non-brand safe content. Do you think Mm -hmm. some of the uh, decline in users was because brand safety has gotten worse on Twitter because Musk fired the whole team that was managing that? Or do you think it's always been thus and it just became a convenient excuse for people to spend their money elsewhere as advertisers? Yeah, I think it's always been bad. I mean, I don't know, maybe is is it 5% worse than it was previously? Maybe, but, or 10, but I don't think it was exactly the most pleasant place on earth before Elon took over. It was already a, a cesspool. Right, and people haven't stopped piling on to you whenever you say anything remotely controversial because Elon took over. The creative ways that people will find to call you a, an idiot on Twitter can, is ceaselessly amazing. <laughs> I, Not you, Richard, me. Um, I got one last question for Alex and one last for Richard before we close it out for part one. And for Alex, what I wanted to ask you is to bring a concept from my book, which was that if you look at consumer behavior today, they go to the extremes. They like the thrill of a bargain, they like the thrill of a luxury, but they don't like what's in between. In my world, music streaming is a bargain. It's been nine ninety nine for 23 years now. Vinyl is a luxury, but people don't want CDs. They want the two edges, but they don't want the middle. But we were talking hmm. earlier about like Twitter sort of compressing news down into bite-sized chunks. That's obviously proved popular. We're talking about one of the most popular apps in the App Store today. But at the other end, and it's the most depressing stat that Richard hates me quoting is that more Americans listen to Joe Rogan on Spotify than buy newspapers. And that's a proper three hour show, maybe two or three times a week. He gets more listening hours than any creator on Spotify's platform. 16, 17 million people times three hours times three times is a lot of hours for one person together. And I would imagine a lot of those people are the same people. They want three hours of Joe Rogan. They want bite-sized chunks on Twitter. Is there anything in that? Or am I just rambling horseshit here in terms of just how people want long form over here and short form over here, but they don't want what's left in between, which is buying the New York Times. I think that's a really good point. I mean, they do the short and the long reinforce each other, right? Interesting. You see all these short bits of information and then you say, 
well, now I really would like a three-hour podcast that can, t- can contextualize what's going on in the news for me. Or maybe one hour, but it's nice to dig into something <laughs> in real depth. And an article simply can't do that for you. you. 800 words is a very tough bit of block of information to really relay nuanced and complex ideas where a podcast like this one actually is a good place to do that. And then, you know, if it's just that bit of information, I think, you know, 280 characters works pretty well. So, and yeah, the the longer, I mean, yeah, the longer form builds interest for you to know what's in the moment. So you go for something shorter form and the shorter form builds interest for you to dive deeper in. I will say in the middle, I mean, maybe I'm talking my book here a little bit, but I do think the newsletter is something in the middle that's proving to be a pretty good way to convey information. It doesn't have to cover everything, right? One of the things that newspapers do is they're dutiful. You know, something happens in one area and you're like, well, let's get a reporter on and let's cover that because we cover, you know, crypto. But if you're a, a newsletter, you really don't have to follow the herd, Yeah, right? You can say, actually, this is what's interesting. And so when it lands in people's inboxes, they'll understand that there's going to be a lot more signal versus noise there, and there will never be a dutiful story. How many newsletters have you had rejected? There's a question that journalists write working for the man can't answer. You're in control of it. Richard, last question before the break for you. Hypocrisy check, not fact check, hypocrisy check. There's lots of journalists out there bashing Twitter, but lots of them do so on Twitter. And I don't understand this. The hypocrisy of saying Twitter's bad, Twitter's this, Twitter's that, on your own Twitter account. How do you understand the kind of the journalistic addiction to being on Twitter, even when their sentiments towards the platform are so negative? Is it like a crack cocaine thing where they just can't get off it? So, I mean, I want to preface that by saying I've never been on Twitter. It's not for me. Uh, A lot of what I do as an analyst, especially being heavily regulated, I can't be on Twitter. Uh, I could have my own separate persona, but frankly, I don't need the overhead. But I think the reason why so many people, not just journalists, take to Twitter is because it is a megaphone. And you may be shouting into the canyon, shouting into the ether, shouting to nobody, but there's a chance that people might hear you. And in this incredibly atomized society where we don't have the face-to-face conversations or the friend groups that we might have in the past... Twitter is a place where you can shout and get a response. Now, that response may be full of horrible invective telling you to, you know, take a long walk on a short pier or do much worse things. It may be full of vitriol (laughs) and awful, you know, death threats and rape threats and all this. And, you know, Will, you and I have talked about the Amnesty International toxic Twitter report, which heavily featured your former Scottish leader, Nicola Sturgeon, and all the rape and death threats she got for years as a leader, all coming through Twitter. And, you know, it was astonishing to me that for years there were things that literally would be dead illegal as a citizen. You couldn't walk up to an MP and threaten to kill them or rape them or whatever, but you could do it all the time on Twitter. And so it provided a megaphone for all sorts of people, not just journalists, to get their voice out there and with without any filter. And I know that was Jack's great theory about the public square, but there was never that those kind of guardrails that a sensible editor or at least some sort of tech solution might provide. And, but I think it's irresistible to anyone who feels like they have something to say to want to reach the largest possible audience. And Twitter was like catnip to millions of them. Catnip, a nice way of explaining how they got hooked. So to close out on part one, I want to share with you a very quick story and for our audience's benefit about my favorite movie of all time, which is a little known film called Triple Cross. It's actually the precursor to James Bond. A lot of the cast that were in Goldfinger, you'll find in Triple Cross. The lead actor, Christopher Plumer, Sound of Music. Incredible story about a bank thief in Britain who gets caught by the British police in 1939 and sent to jail in Jersey, which is then occupied by the Germans. Long story short, the Triple Cross. Is he spying for Germany against Britain? Is he spying for Britain against Germany? Nobody knows. And the film is constantly has you on the edge of your seat. It was, is he going to get caught by the Germans? Is he going to get caught by the Brits? Who is he actually for? So he's always in a corner and he has this wonderful line where he says, and Richard, to your point about people shouting in the park, he says, 
If I find that people don't believe me, I just raise my voice. It's a beautiful way of capturing perhaps what Twitter actually is. A way of raising your voice if you're not actually that believable. Let's wrap it up for part one. In part two, we're going to go down a rabbit hole and get to grips with some of the data around this app and make sense of where it's actually going. Back in a moment. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to Bubble Trouble. With me, independent analyst Richard Kramer, the author and economist Will Page, and joined by Alex Kantrowitz, the renowned blogger and newsletter author of Big Technology, who I've been reading for many years and even worked in this rather shady business of ad tech for a while. I didn't know that. You know, I'm having to rethink you, rethink my opinion of you there, Alex. <laughs> Will, Bring us up to date with the latest data you've seen about what's going on with the usage of the app formerly known as Twitter. Fantastic. So firstly, let's just explain the source of data that we've got to work with here. It's app data. So these app analytics companies, App Annie, Apptopia, Sensor Tower, they're all doing basically the same thing. Huge panels trying to estimate or guesstimate what's going on in app stores. That's helpful. It is not a scientific truth, but it's directionally interesting to follow. There are lots of caveats. It is a panel, and you can use a website to watch Twitter as opposed to apps, so the coverage isn't there. But if we just take a look at what Sensor Tower allowed us to talk about, I want to thank Salman Chowderoy and the team for preparing this for us. Everything, to Alex's point in part one, everything is down. But how much down is it is what I want to get to. So downloads, well, how relevant is downloads for an established app like Twitter? Most people have got the app. You don't need to download it, but they're down. They're down from about 15 million a month to 10 million globally and down in the US from 2 million to less than 1 million. So just to reiterate, less than a million downloads a month of the Twitter or the X app happening in the States right now. On users, they're down too, globally down by 60 million on the year to 365 million. Still a hugely popular app. And the US down 10 million to about 60 million. Again, a really popular American app. Session count is where it gets interesting. And that's what I like about these app store analytics companies, which is, What's happening to frequency? Frequency at the upper end is down to about 72 million visits per month, and it's down to about 11 million visits per month in the US. But session frequency, in terms of the density of frequency, is where it gets interesting. Number of people visiting 15 times a month, that's an interesting metric. Last year, 48% of users. This year, 42% of users. Now, it's bad to talk about numbers in our audio-only podcast, but let's just take a time out. There's less users using it less often. That's what we can establish from all these numbers. Churn is interesting. We were able to pull some pretty interesting churn metrics. It's now rising to 15%, which is the highest in history. If we went back two or three years to the pandemic, it was 7 8%, now it's 15%. Alex, this is your point about net churn. They've always had a problem with churn. When you know you've got a problem is when churn becomes net churn. Or as I like to say, tech companies are like bicycles. If they don't move forward, they fall over. Another interesting thing you can do with apps, and I'm throwing you around with data points here, but app overlap. When people are using Twitter, what other apps are they using? And I couldn't see many broadsheet newspapers there, which is interesting. So I'm not using Twitter and the New York Times. What I did see was Reddit. And in part two, Alex, I want to pin you on that one, which is, could Reddit replace Twitter? I mean, Reddit seems to be hot property right now. Why is that? It's a clunky app. It's a clunky interface, but it seems to be on the rise. Quick comment there on threads. Where is threads? It's nowhere and it's getting smaller. I want to repeat, it's nowhere and it's getting smaller. Nowhere is not news, getting smaller is news. Threads is declining. 
But when I step back from all this data, yes, there's less downloads. Yes, there's less users. Yes, there's less frequency. Yes, there's not much app overlap going on. And yes, Threads doesn't pose it a threat. What do I think? I think this, Alex and Richard, for somebody who's a Luddite on Twitter, is still a damn fucking popular app. It's just outside the top 10 apps in America, and it's well inside the top 20 apps on the planet. This is an app and a company which goes through highs and lows. And I want to know in part two whether this is cyclical or whether this is structural. That is, is it going through a lull just now and it's going to come back when the presidential election happens and potentially the biggest draw to date will be on Twitter explaining his policy manifesto? Or is this a structural thing where we're now on the slope of hope? But I leave it there. The numbers are down. Alex, you're bang on with your points. But I don't know if they're down for good. So I think there's a reason why my... The, so we started speaking because I wrote this post on big technology and the headline is exclusive data. Twitter is shrinking under Elon Musk. And I think there's a reason why my headline is somewhat restrained compared to the multiple headlines you've seen from reporters talking about how Twitter is dead or Twitter is gone and never will come back or how Elon Musk murdered Twitter and, you know, rest in peace to the blue bird. Um, I purposely didn't say that it's dead. In fact, in the story, I talk about how time spent per AU is, from the data that I saw, is relatively unchanged. And that the and and that this app is still driven largely by power users. That the power users on the app account for in the seventy percent range of the time spent. So, what I'm trying to say is basically that Twitter is has uh, is shrinking under Musk, but it still remains a extremely popular app among some, and is vigorously used by the people who are most serious about using Twitter. So. There's many that haven't been able to break its addiction because nothing has really come up to replace it. I think the point of the story was, A, let's just take a look at Elon's performance. You know, under the first year, remember he he acquired Twitter in October 2022. So this is a one year later. My story came out like just a few days before Sync Day for all who celebrate is October 26th. That's when Elon Musk walked into Twitter headquarters with a sync. And so I wanted to mark the occasion. And yeah, I mean, if when you're running an app, one of the big markers you have is, well, have you created the conditions where more or less people want to use it? And the app and the data from me and from Sensor Tower and wherever you look shows conclusively that it's it's shrinking. It's not dramatically shrinking, but it is shrinking. It's shrinking meaningfully. And that really stands in contrast with some of the statements that you're getting from Twitter and Twitter leadership. Linda Yaccarino in July, said X usage is at an all-time high, which that doesn't really seem to jive with reality. And so let me just hit the last point. When you talk about is this a a structural moment or is this a, you know, a blip, I would argue that it's structural. I don't think it's the end of Twitter, but I think it's structurally going to be like smaller than it was because of the fact that its core use case is no longer you know, as meaningful as it was. And I'm going to go again back to this idea about news. The news just isn't there as in the same way. The algorithm has changed. It doesn't prioritize it. Journalists have been pushed down and many have left. And so I do think that it's just the value prop of the app is not what it used to be. And so I can see it staying in a diminished form, but I, I don't think it's going to go away entirely. They got some net charm, but they don't have Armageddon now. Now, Richard is going to be like a dog on heat with all these Twitter metrics. But let me interrupt for just two more questions about two potential competitors. One that seems to have landed a blow on Twitter, which is Reddit. The other which definitely hasn't, which is Threads. Let's pick up on Threads first. It's clear to me that they came and it's kind of went. I mean, it is tailing off. It, they've got far bigger problems than Twitter has. What does it mean to, let's reverse the question, what does it mean to the strength of Twitter when in part one, Richard gave us a David and Goliath comparison between Twitter and Facebook, and Facebook can't build a competitor. That seems to be pretty conclusive, which is Facebook threw a punch, and it seems to have missed. I think that network effects really matter a lot. I mean, the more people that are on a network, mm. like the more it's going gonna, it's gonna, to um, be useful to you. And if you start with more than, what, 200 million uh, daily active users on app and web combined... Uh, you know, even if 10 million of them go off and use threads every day, which I think is the data that you're showing from Sensor Tower, you're going to have 
you know, still remaining 190 million on Twitter. And so the information you're getting on Twitter is just going to be way more useful to you than the information you're going to get on threads. So that's why it's been, it's not going to be something, threads could never really be something that's going to start and, and win in a day unless everybody picked up and moved there. And they won't. And they haven't for two reasons, I think, two main reasons. Number one, it's very difficult to leave an audience that you've built or in a community that you've built over time on Twitter overnight and try to recreate it on another app. It almost never happens. And when I say almost, I mean, it really never happens. You can't just port audiences and communities over one social network to the other. And anybody who's interested in like making the technology of that possible, I think underestimates how big of a social problem that is. And then two, Threads took a intentional decision to structure its feed exactly in the way that would not get it that engagement right away, which is that its algorithm is slow. You see things that happened hours, days sometimes previously. That's and that's intentional. They don't want news on there. They've said it multiple times. And look, if you don't want to do news and you're in the format of a news app, your app is going to be confused. And that's what Threads is. So this difficulty for people to bring their communities over, the speed of the algorithm have really limited Threads' ability to capitalize. And you look at the engagement that's happened from the moment that Threads launched until now, and it's totally fascinating. So this is, again, a piece of data that I published from Aptopia. But on the launch of Threads, the day of the launch, people were spending between 20 and 25 minutes there. And now they're spending under five minutes there, the daily active users. Wow. So it just goes to show you that they were they went their hands open looking for something that could replace it. Even though it looks like Twitter, it doesn't act like Twitter. And that's why they're like, well, screw this. I don't get anything out of it. I'm here. I'm going to spend five minutes just to check in. Just real quickly before I hand over to Richard there, the one app which deserves no more than a tweet length commentary from yourself is Reddit. I mean, it's not that big, it's not that influential, but it seems to be on the rise. It seems to be eating the lunch of newspapers and potentially a bit of Twitter as well. Do you have anything to say on Reddit in terms of, is that, has that got its mojo right now, or is it just to be left on the hard shoulder of tech companies? I don't think Reddit could ever fully replace Twitter because it's also just a bit too slow. But similar to Twitter, Reddit has a language and a certain set of norms and customs that you have to understand and a, and a great deal of curation that you need to put on your feed to make it useful and also some dark corners that can get pretty horrible. Mm -hmm. So so Reddit, I think, serves a different purpose than Twitter. It's more of an old forum site where you're, it's really useful for finding information about obscure things that you might not otherwise find. It's just very different from a real-time news feed. It's almost like a knowledge base for Google where you type in what you want from Google and you say, you know, best way to, you know, get tickets for my for this band, Reddit, and there's the answer. But it's very different from Twitter. I hear you. Rich. But last thing, I saw that one of the apps that overlapped with Twitter usage is Pocket, which is a read it later app. And that sort of goes to a point we were talking about in the first mm -hmm. part, which is that what people do is they go to Twitter, they see links that find, they find interesting, they save it to Pocket, and then... They want to go deeper. You know, they crawl up a bed at night with their phone and the pocket app and they're reading long two, three, four thousand word articles the that they discovered on Twitter. Luxury. And there it is. Yeah. So it's not just the Rogan podcast is what I'm trying to say. But, well, I, I think this whole discussion about threads and Reddit has been a waste of time. And I'll tell you why. <laughs> I think threads was an entire head fake and irrelevant because it was just Mark Zuckerberg's way of saying to Elon Musk and, and X, we don't care what you do, we can mess with your heads. The last quarter reported by Meta, they added $6 billion year on year in revenue, which is more than Twitter ever had in a single <laughs> annual year of revenue. So the incremental addition to the quarterly pile of revenue that Mark Zuckerberg brings in was greater than the Twitter business has ever been. And Threads was just a way of saying, whatever you can do, we can do it too. So just don't mess with us. And for all the protestations or predictions of the death of fill-in-your-tech company, the death of Twitter, 
How many times have you heard, well, blue Facebook is dying. Instagram, people don't care about it anymore. They're losing interest in it. And yet Mark Zuckerberg and the crew at Meta is able to fire 24% of their staff and grow their revenues 23%. And Elon Musk walks into Twitter, now known as X, fires 70 or 80% of the staff, but somehow can't get that annual user growth or for sure can't get the annual revenue growth. And I think if we saw the real numbers for Twitter today, the commercial numbers for the business, not whether it's Musk or Linda Yaccarino saying, oh yeah, we're close to cash flow positive, <laughs> then I think we would have a much clearer picture of how much trouble the business is in. And in my 30 years experience as an analyst, I think you see a lot of tech companies that appear to be on a glide path downwards, but you don't know that point in which either they're going to stall out and head straight down or hit into the side of the mountain. I agree there are some communities on Twitter that are deeply ingrained, whether the crypto bros or, I mean, there's so many, or cyber world, there's so many communities, sub-communities on Twitter that aren't going to leave anytime soon. But whether those communities alone can sustain a business, not clear to me. And I think Threads was just a way of messing with Twitter. Much like, you know, people were all going to go to Mastodon or they were going to go to Post or any of these other alternatives. And none of them played out. They were just, you know, basically kicking Twitter or X while it was down. Yeah, I hear you. Well, you're right. I mean, Mark Zuckerberg hasn't come across a social or tech entrepreneur. He hasn't wanted to fight in a cage, literally or metaphorically. So throw Elon in the mix. <laughs> right. So let's step back and ask the big question that is now raised by all this data. What would you do or what could be done to save Twitter? Especially given, and this was a discussion Will and I were having before, while you could paint a rosy picture heading into election that it's a real-time news megaphone, at the same time, it has... 13 billion reasons why time is running short. And those are the dollars it owes to its bondholders, though they may be writing it off, half of that off very quickly. So this is a business that's clearly running on fumes, unable to sort of turn the corner. There's plenty of studies showing how many of the large advertisers have left Twitter. And frankly, they seem to be getting the return on ad spent on Meta or Google or other platforms and certainly not really returning to linear TV where ads are down a lot. What could be done right now to try to rescue Twitter if you were someone sensible and not as impulsive as Elon Musk? Right. I mean, did you see that we just saw news that X is now telling its employees that it's only valued at 19 billion compared to the 44 billion that Oops. Elon paid for it? So 55% drop. And it's so serious about that number. That's the number that it's sort of granting them equity off of, not the Whoa. 44 billion. So, you know, Richard, just to start, like you talk about your 13 billion reasons, you're right. You know, maybe they're more like 5 billion right now, which, okay, maybe that's more manageable. Now, look, if you're going to run Twitter and you're going to try to be more reasonable than Musk, I think there's a few common sense things you're going to do. But the first thing you're going to do is go through your list of laid off account executives, your sales team, and call each one of them. And well, first look at their number in Salesforce or whatever it is. Anyone that was either medium performing or high performing, you call them back and you say, we're really sorry about what Mr. Musk did. We're going to bring you back with a better compensation structure. Your commission is going to be doubled. We need you to call the accounts that you lost and ask them to please come back and give them all the credit they need to ensure that Twitter is the right place for them. Because they belong here, and we knew you were so great at telling them that they belong, convincing them that they belong here, that you'd be a true asset to our company. When can you start? That's number one. Number two is then you go to the engineers and you say, listen, we know you've heard for the past year that Twitter needs to be a platform that incentivizes Mr. Musk to appear on the top of the timeline, and as well as ChatGPT influencers, crypto scams, image, violent images, porn, whatever it is. We're going to return to our roots as a vital news app, and we are going to speed this feed up, prioritize breaking events, and minimize the outrage. So more primary sources, more journalists reporting the news, and less dunking. It might hurt us in the engagement, but it will build credibility 
Let's see what we can do and let's see how much progress we can make in the next few weeks. Then you go to your safety, trust and safety team, whoever's left. And you say, listen, your job is actually going to be to make this platform more pleasant not to fight a culture war. The first thing that you're going to do is take verification off of everybody. And unfortunately, that means canceling Twitter Blue. Okay? We can build that back up from the ground in the beginning, but we start by removing verification from everyone. I need you to come back to me with a plan in the next two weeks to talk about who can get verified. And we're going to do this not off a culture war, but based off of people that are providing the information talking about primary and secondary sources. Do we need to have two different color badges? Do we need a blue badge and a green badge or whatever it is, or a yellow badge? Let's do it. But we have to give a signal to the people using this app that there are people whose job it is or whose existence is predicated on delivering information. And we want to highlight those people and then trust our users to make a determination when they're telling them the truth or not and not try to do it for them. I think you start with that plan and you're already on path to riding the ship and you position yourself well to capitalize on the 2024 election cycle, which will be big in the U.S. and maybe elsewhere. It's not going to be an easy job. It's not something that I'd want to do, but I think there is definitely a path to do it. And we do know the direction that could take this company, you know, on the right path. You have to, you know, I mean, maybe fourth of all. Okay, here's the last part. You go to Wall Street or whoever your investors are and you say, I'm going to need patience and, you know, value me appropriately, but understand that this is going to take time. And if you're an activist, stay the hell away, you know, because your incentives and the incentives of what it's going to make this platform the right, put this platform in the right direction, just don't align and you're going to do more harm than good. And yeah, I think you do all four of those things and you could really put the platform in a much better position than it is today. And my last question on that before we go to the last section, which is smoke signals, is that possible under Musk? And will Linda Yaccarino be there in a year's time to see this sort of a plan through? No, it's not possible under Musk because it sort of goes against everything he's tried to do at X or Twitter Mm. for this time. So we'll see. If somebody else comes in, we'll see. Now, if Elon remains, the question about Linda Yaccarino is interesting because he brought her in. I mean, she had all these connections to Madison Avenue she had the potential to rekindle some of these brand relationships. And it's not going to be easy. I see Richard shaking his head. I'll tell you this. The thing that will predict whether Lindy Eccarino is going to be there or not is going to be whether that advertising revenue is increasing. Not advertisers coming back, because lots of advertisers can come back and spend 50 cents with Twitter or take a free credit. I'm talking about net ad revenue increasing in a meaningful way that will show that Yaccarino is doing her job no matter how often. She bombs her interviews at places like the Code Conference. If the ad revenue continues to sink, then she's gone. Yeah, I'd say it's a bit even more nuanced than that because what's been clear is that Twitter's ad revenue has shifted from being leading brands who wanted reach and frequency just to get their name out there to a bunch of casual mobile games or crypto scams or what have you. So they have swapped out good quality revenue for flighty revenue. It's why on Twitter you see the same ads so frequently because they don't have the depth of advertisers that they can't do the frequency capping that says we can't just show you the same damn ad all the time because they just don't have that deep roster of advertisers. And again, whether it's the ubiquity study, whether there's many studies out there that show they've just lost many of those Madison Avenue stalwart advertisers that used to be regulars on Twitter and swap them out for a bunch of flighty um, and frankly quite dubious ad, ad, you know, quality ads. I don't know if this is safe for air, but we kind of joke about like the fact that we, you know, there's people call it surveillance capitalism, but our data, the data that a lot of advertisers have is embarrassingly poor on what we are. I think one stat that I heard once when I was reporting on ad tech was that ad tech systems believe that 75% of the world's population are men. And that 75% of the world's population are women. <laughs> and, and the ads that I've been getting on Twitter lately are for small cup bras. And I can tell you I'm not in the market for those. So, <laughs> so that just, I mean, basically, I think, Richard, what you're saying is right, that the quality of advertiser and the quality of data has declined significantly. Well, and I think one of the fundamental issues of Twitter for the very longest time, and again, for my many years of, of looking deeply into the tech, was that 
it just didn't have all the intense signals in the social graph. You know, you could be tweeting again as hashtag raving racist. They wouldn't know who your favorite football team was. They wouldn't know your wife's birthday. They wouldn't know all of this sort of additional stuff that you inform a Google or a meta about your lives. They just knew this persona that you had. And since you could have an anonymous handle, since you could sign up with a burner phone and say anything to anyone, then you could be anyone on Twitter. And therefore you didn't slot into those really attractive advertising segments that the large advertisers are coveting. They wouldn't know if you're in the mood for, or in the market for a luxury car or looking to play a casual mobile game because they just didn't have those basic facts about you. They didn't even, when I did my subject data request on Twitter years ago, they didn't know my age. I was somewhere between 18 and 54. <laughs> so, you know, it's kind of- it, Solid it, targeting, it come on in. Have, yeah, doesn't have that kind of targeted demographic data set that you get on some of the other platforms. Yeah, as an ad novice in a room full of experts, a student to his professor, one contribution here is at Spotify in 2015 when we successfully launched Discover Weekly, which really changed the game, you know, delivering curation at scale, 40 million people getting 40 million unique playlists as opposed to listening to one radio station playing the same songs to all people. But I remember saying to folks there at Spotify, it's like, what we don't know is what you listen to prior to Spotify. And you've been listening to music for years prior to Spotify. So how much of this is Discover Weekly versus Rediscover Weekly? We're getting the wrong signals. We're getting the wrong inferences. Whereas Facebook, now Meta, their genius was to have that timeline where you populated life prior to Facebook. I always thought that was fascinating of just fill the gaps because those gaps you're filling are worth more than the ones you're living right now. Let's get you past so we can market to your present. So, That's right. So... Alex, we usually wrap up Bubble Trouble with asking our guests for what we call smoke signals. Now, you've been a tech reporter for a while. You've seen the hyper growth and demise of many tech companies that you thought would be invincible and all of a sudden they weren't. What are some of those oh moments when you hear people talk about tech companies broadly or you hear people talk about Twitter that just make you make that facepalm expression and what terminology causes you just to, to wince when you hear tech executives talk about it? What are a couple of the things that you'd warn people to, to look out for? Or wish you had a rubber desk so you could bang your head against. Oh, yeah. So there's one, I mean, so I live in New York City. I just went down to the Sam Bakeman free trial for a couple of days and watched that. Oh, my goodness. And... It I was, love how I you mean, say best that. Show, best live show in New York. You could have watched Netflix, but you went to the trial. Okay. I went. Yeah, my wife and I went. We watched it. I watched it for reporting purposes, and she watched it out of curiosity. She'd been hearing so much about this SBF character and asking why we don't have our retirement saving anymore. So she thought, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but we did go down Thank there. Thank Lord for sarcasm. And, um, yeah. And we went down there, and, and Carol, we watched Caroline Ellison's testimony. And by the way, amazing, just amazing watching this app. We were in the overflow room, which had about like 30 different journalists and analysts, members of the public. And just hearing some of the things that she was saying sent the room in like uproarious laughter at certain points. It's like one moment where FTX was running out of money and the judge asked, well, where did Sam, you know, think he was going to get, or the, sorry, maybe the lawyer asked this, where did Sam think he was going to get the money to keep funding the company? And she goes, well, from Saudi Prince Muhammad bin Salman, <laughs> just like straight face. And everyone's like, what? You know, so anyway, that's all to say there's this, I don't know, maybe you guys can correct me if I'm off here, but there's this effective altruism religion that was behind FD, many of the FTX leaders, which is big in Silicon Valley right now, which is effectively looking at the, you know, what's the expected impact you can have, you know, on society, on the world in your lifetime? What's, how can you maximize that? And, you know, a lot of that is like, you know, how many lives can you save? And for many people, it's how much money can you make and put that money into life-saving causes? And it was all, it was all, that's what the whole FTX leadership team was about. And it's, by the way, it's all, all over. It's at the top of the leadership of this company called Anthropic, which is one of the most important AI companies right now. It's head-to-head -head with OpenAI. It has its own bot, Claude. And it just got $2 billion in funding from Google and one anywhere between 1.25 and 4 billion from Amazon. Wow. It's run by effective altruists. And there's also Dustin Moskovitz, who is one of the Facebook co-founders is part of this crew. It goes on and on. 
And there's this uh, acronym that I just heard called TESCREAL. It's called, it stands for Transhumanism, Extropianism, Singularitarianism, Cosmism, Rationalism, Effective Altruism, and Long-Termism. Do either of you guys, do you guys believe belong to any of these groups? Smells like bullshit Before I go further. <laughs> okay, so, so listen, I think that when people start to say that, even Sam was saying, as utilitarianism, it's okay for me to lie and steal if, the, if it justifies my ends. I think any of these isms, right, that people profess to believe in, if it's not capitalism, that's when I start to worry. I believe in capitalism. Not that I don't think there's any problems in it, but I, I think that if someone tells you that they're from this other ism, there's some signs to be concerned there because it probably means they're obscuring something else. The other side of this, okay, okay, so second smoke signal. Oh, no, let me say. The other side of this is accelerationism, which is this broad category of folks in the tech world who basically think that we must innovate and nothing can stop, can stand in the way. This comes from Max Reed. He's another substacker talking about the main idea is that rather than resist or retard or even control economic, political, or technological change, we should accelerate it, all of it. For the good of humanity, transforming society, the planet, and possibly even humans ourselves, even if it means becoming alien and recognizable. Like, I do think that other ism is somewhat dangerous as well. So, smoke signal, when I hear people talk about these things as these business religions, it does definitely make me pause for a moment. And the other thing is when people talk about singular solutions, how Jack Dorsey referred to Elon as the singular solution who could help fix Twitter. At that point, I was like, no, we can't do this. There's always going to be better or worse. He, if he says the best option, in my opinion, fine. Once people start trying to sell this idea of being singular, there's generally something going wrong in their head at that point. And I think that's clearly what happened to Jack Dorsey and is playing out with Twitter and Elon Musk. I hear yeah. it. If I can take the honors of closing this one out, Alex, this has been a really fruitful, rewarding conversation. Again, as a novice in the room with two two veterans of the game, I've learned a lot and I hope our audience has too. The, the two things that are bugging in my basement as we close this podcast out, one is both countries represented on this podcast have elections coming up next year. You know, my country might even have a referendum next year, but I wonder what happens when you go back to the polls with Twitter. Is it going to be the town hall for the next presidential election or will it be dead and buried by then. There's extremes. It's going to be somewhere in the middle, but I wouldn't cancel out the chance of a resurgence on Twitter should you know who be running for the Republican Party next year. I think there's something there. And then the second thing Mm. is just the value of comments. And I think you've talked a lot about content moderation. That's been very educational for me, but if I was to throw something equally relevant back at you, it's YouTube comments. What a lot of people don't know is that two years ago, roughly, YouTube imposed content moderation on comments. They took around 2,800 words and said these words can't appear in comments. Now, you can beat the drum of free speech if you like, but you don't own YouTube and it's their real estate and they tell you how to govern their real estate. But what this did was it made YouTube comments really pleasurable to read. And there's a value to comments. In my book, I worked with the artist Yeber, that's Abby spelt backwards, and she says, I value the comments on YouTube more than the cash from Spotify. There's something very valuable in that statement. And I just wonder whether we might be missing the boat here in terms of where are the eyeballs going? They might be reading YouTube comments more than Elon's tweets. I just think there could be something there in terms of what content moderation can achieve, understanding the risk of free speech and all that stuff, People want to read pleasurable stuff, and maybe that's where the eyeballs are going. On that note, Alex, thank you so much for giving up your precious time to come on this pod at this hour uh, on such a topic that's really hot, and we would love to get you back. But it's been great learning about this crazy roller coaster ride of Twitter with you, and thanks so much for educating the audience. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on. It's great to meet you. It's great to see you, Richard. I, I should shout out the newsletter one more time. It's called Big Technology. It's at bigtechnology.com. We just released this premium subscription, uh, really fresh off the presses. There's a few things that come with it. Weekly Friday article that I write. I have a monthly Amazon column from Christy Coulter, who spent 11 years at Amazon and is now going to write about it from the outside for Big Technology, which is super exciting. I got this other thing called the Big Tech War Stories podcast that's part of the premium bundle, which is once a month I sit down with someone who's been on the inside of Big Tech 
who's built an interesting product or worked under some you know big CEO and is able to share some of their uh, recollections or lessons from the moment. So it's at bigtechnology.com and would be thrilled if people signed up and gave it a shot. It's great to be on with you guys. All the very best to you. If you're new to Bubble Trouble, we hope you'll follow the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. Bubble Trouble is produced by Eric Nism, Jesse Baker, and Julia Natt at Magnificent Noise. You can learn more at bubbletroublepodcast.com. Until next time, for my co-host Will Page, I'm Richard Kramer. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.